welcome to Sounds Heal Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Brown, and thanks for joining me as we explore the fields of sound healing, sound therapy, and using sound for health and wellness. This episode is sponsored by the Ohm Shop and Spa. The Ohm Shop specializes in sound healing and vibrational medicine tools. They have the country's largest showroom of quartz crystal singing bowls, sound healing instruments, and other tools. It's a great place to get guidance and direction if you're looking to up your sound healing practice. You can call them today or visit them at theomshop.com. If you're ever near Sarasota, Florida, do consider stopping by. I've been lucky enough to teach some classes there and even enjoy some of their luxury spa treatments such as energy work and massage, and they even have vibroacoustics and hypnotherapy. They truly offer a full holistic experience, and I thank them for their sponsorship of this podcast. Today's guest is Jack Kasowitz, a Florida-based dolphin scientist and founder of the Speak Dolphin Research Organization. We talk about his fascinating research and time with dolphins. And I discovered him through looking into the work of John Stuart Reed and the cymoscope, which is looking into cymatics, the forms that can be made visible by sound. And through John Stuart Reed's work, I discovered Jack because they've actually worked together to explore the sound and the frequencies and to look into what is actually happening when it comes to dolphins and their sound. In fact, they can see with their sound. And so this was very exciting discovery for me looking into their work. And and then I ended up reading Jack's book, Speak Dolphin, and just so inspiring. And the implications of all of this are just amazing to me. So I was excited when Jack agreed to talk with me about dolphins. What do we know about dolphins? What don't we know? And how it challenges our understanding of language, communication, sound, and even consciousness. So really a wonderful conversation about his work, about his work with John Stuart Reed, about what the research reveals, and about continuing and developing research. I will drop the link to the research article from John Stuart Reed and Jack Kasowitz in the text below on whatever platform you're listening to. So please enjoy this podcast with Jack Kasowitz. I thought it would be nice, you know, to get a bit of your background, uh, not only into music and the importance of percussion in your life, but maybe how that led to some breakthroughs in your research. So maybe kind of go back a bit into your childhood music uh, and wildlife work and then how that ultimately connected in a way. Well, so for me, um, I've been involved in research since I was very young. Um, I was a, a, a gifted child, but my gift was the fact that um, uh, I, I'm on the autism spectrum disorder spectrum thing. Mm. And um, much like Bill Gates, I'm a high-functioning person in terms of the spectrum disorder, but I didn't fit in with school well. Uh, and 
so my father, who was uh, editor of a newspaper here in Miami, realized I was kind of floundering in school. Um, uh, I have Asperger's syndrome. Asperger's made it very difficult for me to read like most people read. Uh, if I listen to something, I remember it forever. But mm-hmm. if I had to read something, I had to go read it over and over and over again and mm-hmm. becoming very frustrated in school. So my dad, when I was about 12 years old, uh, said to me, uh, uh, what do you want to do uh, during this coming summer? Because the last couple of summers you went to camp and that's kind of a waste of your gift. What would you like to do? And I said, uh, well, I want to do research. Now, I have to be honest with you. I had no idea what research was. I, I mean, what kind of research I might want to do. I would, you know, I just. It was just something I threw out. I didn't want to work uh, manual labor. That was not my style. Uh, I'm not against it. It's just not something I did well. And um, so he said, all right, I'll get back to you in a couple of weeks, and let's see if we can't get you a summer job. So my first job when I was 12 years old is I was a research, assin- a research assistant in open-heart surgery at Jackson Memorial Hospital. Mm-hmm. I stood next to the doctors during a surgical research project, uh, and for several years, and uh, that so that was my introduction both to research, and our research initially was done on animals, and that was my uh, introduction to animals at all in terms of uh, care, caring for them and loving for them and being involved with them. Uh, simultaneous to that, uh, I was always involved in music. Music I got. For some reason, Asperger's did not affect my ability to really both play and appreciate music. And so that was my second passion besides research was percussion. I was a drummer. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly enough, when I was very young and, uh, again, 10, 11, 12 years old, um, my dad used to bring record albums on from the newspaper that he was the editor of. And I would literally, I got a conductor's uh, uh, wand, uh, baton, and I used to conduct uh, classical music. That was my, I would stand in front of the then hi-fi. We didn't have stereos. And I would conduct like 1812 Overture, as if I was the conductor mm-hmm. in the orchestra. Mm-hmm. And surprisingly enough, 45 years later, 50 years later, when I met my biological for the father for the first time, turns out he was a conductor. Wow. Uh, a, 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 just interesting, you know, mm. how, how we are affected. Anyway, so that was my introduction both to research and also my introduction to music. And and I I've always been a percussionist. I played piano because it's a percussion instrument. But um, I've always been interested in music and the complexities of music and experimenting with music. So when I began working with dolphins, you know, we go we go to year, somewhere around the year 2000, 20 years ago, and I really seriously started doing research with dolphins. And my whole life from that point on of doing the early surgical research somehow was all you know revolved around both animals. And to some degree, research. So in the year 2000, uh, when I got married, my uh, wife was a founding partner of a major dolphin facility. Mm-hmm. And she, she and I suggested that I use my research and see if I could figure out what these dolphins were saying. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what initiated me to look at dolphins. How do I connect dolphins to music? That, that's really a very funny story. So again, if you're a percussionist, and you sit in the middle of a band or an orchestra, you are really the heartbeat of that orchestra and or band. You direct the, the, the passage of time through the beats that you put into the music. 
So I was very attuned to sitting in the middle of a band, whether it be a you know rock band or a jazz band or orchestra, and feeling the pulse of that music because I had to keep the beat so that the rest of the band had or orchestra had that uh, sense of uh, uh, movement through time, which we call a beat and or uh, syncopation, whichever. And so the first time I go down to uh, spend some time with dolphins, this was in Puerto Aventuras, Mexico, in the Mayan Riviera. I'm in the water by myself, and dolphins are swimming by me. And I notice that my right foot is keeping a beat. Mm-hmm. And I go, "What well, now, wait a minute, there's no music playing. Why am I keeping a beat? And I, that's what really initiated my first look at music and dolphins. And did, did, in fact, their language and or interactions have some musical capa- some, some musical quality that we would look at, uh, that, we, that we call music, they call possibly language. So I'm standing in the water, I'm keeping a beat going, this is really bizarre. Because there, again, there's no music and I've got a beat, something's happening underwater, I need to you know, research and follow. And that's what, what began. I went out and bought all of Every dolphin recording I could buy off the uh, internet at that time, maybe 20 or 30 different albums and tracks, and yet none of them sounded like what I was hearing underwater. So I realized the first thing I need to do is learn how to record these sounds so that they're more realistic in terms of what's actually happening underwater with the dolphins. Uh, and so that's, I mean, that's initially how I got into looking at the musical components of it. And discovered, you know, that I have several albums out that uh, um, are based upon the dolphins' sounds as they progress through time. You know, it's quickly, this is what I did. So I, I took the sounds, and there's something called an um, orchestral analyzer. And the uh, conductor of, a, of an orchestra uh, uses that to tune up the orchestra. So he has this electronic device, the you know the bassoon and or oboe and or trumpet plays the sound, and he says, "Okay, you're on pitch, you're off pitch. Let's you know adjust." So so everybody's in pitch. Well, I realized, I found out, I discovered, if I took the sounds of the dolphins and I ran them through an orchestral analyzer, I was seeing individual music musical notes. Mm. Not suggesting that the dolphins' intent were musical notes, but that's what I was seeing. Mm-hmm. And then I found a program that would take that those musical notes and put them into sheet music. Mm-hmm. So if, you know, I would listen to a dolphin for ten minutes. I would I would have five pieces of sheet music. You know, the, the progression of the sounds. I then went to some graduate students at the University of Miami and music and gave them that sheet music and said, "Would you perform this for me without changing?" the progressions and changing the notes. And one of the first albums I did was these songs that were created by the progressions of the dolphins as they were recorded. Mm. And they're fascinating. They're, they're fascinating to listen to. What do you find? Are they pretty harmonious or how would you yeah, describe there was, it? There was, no, there was only one clinker. We used to call that in music when somebody makes a strange <laughs> note that doesn't fit. They would play B flat every once in a while mm. and it just didn't fit. And I think that the B flat in terms of structure, be a point in time of beginning or ending of the phrase that the dolphin's using the uh, sounds for. Mm. But some of them are beautiful. They're pastoral. You would think that you're listening to Debussy or Beethoven or Bach. Mm-hmm. I mean, you go, oh my God, 
anyway, they're just they're fasc- fascinating to listen to. Well, maybe let's talk about the complexities of of dolphin sounds. You know, um, not only the vocalizations which many people are used to out of the water, but also echolocation. Can you kind of describe what those different things are, and maybe how they're different for from our human sound frequencies? Certainly. Uh, so the, the, the interesting thing when I you know, started listening to the sounds, and I, you know, I, at that time didn't even know that much about dolphin research. I was just interested interested in the musical components of it. Although I had met John Lilly when I was very much younger, he, he worked in Coconut Grove in Miami, and I had some interactions with him there. But I was not thinking in those terms. I was thinking in terms of you know the music. Could I create a new kind of music? I just thought that would have been very cool. Mm. Um, so, but but I realized over the fifty years, with from or 50, forty to fifty years from the time that John Lilly started to where I was, very little had been done. Everybody every year or so said, "Oh, there's been a breakthrough in dolphin language," and then it went nowhere. And it still goes on today. If you look, everybody's having a breakthrough every time there's a funding cycle or something. You know, they've, they, you know, they've discovered language, and I realized that listening to the complexities. Uh, of the music that we probably had no idea what was going on, just no idea, and 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 part of it had to do with the limitations of uh, of the recording um, equipment that we had and the microphones and the hydrophones. I mean, you, you people were going out uh, with Radio Shack bought tape recorders and recording these sounds and thinking that they were getting the full spectrum of dolphin sounds, and that's just ludicrous. You know, because first place, you know, dolphin sounds are way above. It, it can certainly can start in the 5,000, 2,000 hertz range, but that single burst can go up into the 100,000, 200,000, in some cases, 300,000 hertz range. Well, if you're only listening to a tape recorder that has up to 20,000 hertz maximum, that's questionable whether it really did that. Uh, you're not getting the full, it kind of like listening, to me it was like listening to somebody speaking with your hand over your mouth, and it was muffled. Uh, and so anyway, I, I, I had to begin to devise a system that would let me understand those complexities. So what we know now is that uh, dolphins, their range, uh, we, used to, we used to call it 20, you know, the human range is 20, 20, 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz. Dolphins range probably effectively when I say effectively, there are some dolphins who go below a thousand hertz, but they're in the thousand to three hundred thousand hertz range, and with varying degrees of intensity and intention and what they're doing with it. Sometimes an echolocation click is sent out just for localization. You know, where's the target? Uh, then the target is acquired, and then another set of echolocation clicks are used to acquire that target, whether it's a fish or a human. And so that's, I, I, I realized I could not ever speak to them until I understood how they do what they do. Rather than trying to speak, have them speak English, which is not what my intention was, because I don't think that's fair, you know, in, in my opinion. I think what's fair is to try to meet them at their place and see what they use in terms of language. We, it's, it's interesting that we... Had at one point we did a recording in, in uh, Puerto Aventuras, Mexico, and when 
I came back home and was listening to the recordings, you can distinctly hear A-E-O-U. You can hear some of the vowels. This animal is re repeating back vowels to us. Why would he do that? It was, his name was Zeus, a great, great, great animal, still alive. I see him a couple of times a year. So two things that occurred to me. The dolphins are trying to communicate with us as much as we are trying to communicate with them. Mm -hmm. And as, they are as frustrated as we are that it's not working. And I think this particular dolphin, Zeus, was, was showing me that he had identified the components of human language, which are vowels, in this case, English. He had mostly English people working with him. So uh, I, I began to say, well, this thing is a lot more complex. He's trying to communicate with me. What can I do to see what he's, bottom line is, I want to see what he's seeing, because obviously he's using some kind of sonar that was well-established in science. If he's using a sonar, why can't I see it? And that led me to John Stuart Reed. Uh, I don't know if your audience knows who John is, but John is one of the most brilliant men that I've ever known. And in the field of cymatics, he is, there is no better, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So I started, the first thing I did, like any scientist would do, is I looked up on Edmund Scientific, which is a company as a kid everybody buys their science stuff from, and they had a kit to do cymatic images. Uh, and I said, wow. What if I took a sound from a dolphin? What would happen if I played it into this cymatic, into this, you know, system that would create these beautiful patterns? What if I actually saw a fish? I mean, that's really how it started. And I said, um, and I started, and I went and I ordered some stuff, and then I heard about the cymoscope from John Stuart Reed, and I said, why would I want to reinvent the wheel? He's got something going here. So I contacted John, and he and I became friends, and we've written a, a major peer-reviewed paper about what we discovered. And he began imaging the sounds that I sent him. So the next step was, well, yeah, we got these really pretty images. They look, you know, they're very, they're very uh, arithmetic in terms of the way they look and, and, and shapes. And, but I'm still not seeing my fish, you know, <laughs> or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever they're doing. So we were sitting one day. And I, and I said, well, let's start using some novel shapes and have the dolphins echolocate on these novel shapes, and let's see if we can see anything. And so I sent these, I, I, we did a square, a cube, uh, we did a cube, uh, a cross, and a flower pot. And I think it's important to note that when you sent those to John, he didn't know in advance what you had done. Uh, it was, Isn't it that was right? actually more, it, yeah, and it was more complicated. I would send him five wave file, five sound files. Mm -hmm. He didn't know what was in them. And in some cases, there was nothing in them. Hmm. But I was trying to say, what do you see? Right. So the first, so he sends me back. He said, you know, here's the files. These were the first five wave, wave files I sent him. And in there, there, one of them, he did not know this, had a cube. Mm -hmm. But he just sent back, said, I don't see anything. I said, and I went back and said, John, you need, let's go back and look at image number three which would be wave file number three. I said, do you see the straight lines? He said, you can't have straight lines with a cymoscope, Jack. It's got to be round stuff coming off the uh, mm -hmm. walls of the, where, where the sound is being produced. And what would be looking like a Petri dish? It's not a Petri dish. That's, John always gets angry when I use the word Petri, but it would look like a Petri dish. So the reflected 
waves should be round, not straight. In fact, it's impossible for them to be straight. And John says, exactly, it can't be straight. I said, John, go back and look at it. And he goes, holy crap. Hmm. And that's when we discovered the cube for the first time. We then went back and, uh, again, with uh, having the wave files uh, hidden so he didn't know it was there, we discovered the cross and the, the um, you were able to see a definitively see a cross and definitively see the flower pot. We had them sent to a major company and they actually reproduced 3D prints of the things that John was seeing. So that's, you know, that to me, that was pretty cool. You know, I'm, I'm kind of seeing what they're seeing, but that could be reflective ways, waves. What, you know, what's the next step? So we were sitting in Puerto Aventuras again and I'm with one of my business partners, one of my research partners. And listen, we have some of the top research scientists in the world who are there with us. I mean, we have good people, uh, names like uh, our head of our science team is a guy named Dr. Ramachandran, man who discovered mirror neurons, you know, phantom limb syndrome, famous neuroscientists are all part of So this is not a bunch of young kids running around right. playing scientists. We, we're doing science. So we're sitting at the table having lunch one day going, what's next? I said, well, you know, we could use some fundraising here. What if we put somebody under the water and all of a sudden we see their face in the cymatic image? And it was the face of Jesus Christ. I said, do you know how many Christians would send us a dollar? I said, that would fund our research. For the... So it, became, it was like a joke. Yeah. And my, and my, my partner <laughs> says, well, let's put somebody underwater and see what we get. Yep. So we put Jim, the famous picture of Jim uh, uh, underwater, and um, I sent it to John, and John sends me back, not the face of Jim, but the full body of Jim underwater in the exact position. Because we took pictures. We have photographs of Jim underwater as well as the imagery, that, the wave file that we sent to John. So we, we got our first uh, full image of a human underwater. So, and, and that was, oh my gosh, three or four years ago. And from that point in time, we began to look at how does a, how does a dolphin do that and how does he process it? So the last three or four years, it's not been uh, easy because the easy thing was looking at it and seeing Jim underwater. But how do we take that and begin to create some two-way system? Mm. possibly a two-way system between us and dolphins, and what would that look like? And again, we went back, how does a dolphin do that? So we have a research partner whose name is uh, Dr. John Craker, has his PhD in um, uh, linguistics. His PhD is in computational linguistics, uh, and he has approximately 15 to 20 patents just in voice recognition. This guy's a... So he is the one that we're looking at so yet, yes, John got the picture of the guy underwater, but how does a dolphin then process that? Because before we can make a two-way system, we really need to know how they're doing what they're doing. And that's what we've been spending the last couple of years, and we're moving it along, and we're learning lots and lots of stuff. And what was always surprising, surprised me is that everybody who's been teaching dolphins language or teaching them English or whatever it is, nobody sat down and tried to really figure out how does it work mm. and that's what we that's that's been our focus is how does it how does a dolphin do what it does and how does it process it you know it's um 
auditory nerve is huge. I mean, so huge compared to ours. So it's obviously, you know, um, processing so much more information than we do, maybe as much as 100 times as much uh, acoustic information as we do. And so uh, we, that's, that's where we've been focused on. How does it do it? And then we have two papers in the works right now. Our, our last trip, our last trip to Mexico, we got really lucky. There's a company called Sound Devices, and Sound Devices makes mixer, digital mixer recorders for the film industry. Mm. And they, uh, we wanted to put uh, 10 hydrophones in the water at the same time at high, high definition. And we, I'll tell you, frankly, we couldn't afford the recorder. It was a very, very expensive recorder. Well, Sound Devices had seen our work, and they said, you know what? Here. Go to work. You have here's the recorder. Have fun. Do it. So we were able to record. His, where is the dolphin in space and time when he makes the sounds? We were able to definitively break the so the dolphin has an outgoing signal, echolocation signal, and he does up to two thousand um, clicks per second, depending on what's going on. We we wanted to be able to isolate the record the returning signal. Because everybody knows that the outgoing, the outgoing and returning signal, the returning signal is completed before the next outgoing signal. So it's like, it's you know, in microseconds, we're having to find, try to find uh, where the returning signal. And we were able to do that this time again because sound devices saved our, our button and gave us an opportunity to have the kind of equipment that we needed to do that. So we're we're now analyzing how do they do what they do. It's just shocking to me nobody's ever really focused in on it because you're not going to be, able, you know, we're not going to be able to speak to them until we can do it the same way that they speak. Mm -hmm. but, you know, it's just that's the only thing you can do. I don't know if that's too much information for you. But oh, gosh, not I'm at sorry. all. Yes. Not at all. That's it's wonderful. And is it fair to say that dolphins can see with their sound? Is that... well, that's exactly what they do, okay. and, and it's much like sonar. Yeah, there is a, there is something interesting, however, about them seeing with sound. So when they communicate with sound, they cannot lie because mm. they're passing along an image. Mm -hmm. And how do we know that they're passing along an image? So in in in, um, in Puerto Aventuras, Mexico, we put four shapes in the water, and we had the dolphin echolocate on the cube. And we recorded that sound. And we took that recording of the cube to another dolphin facility 100, 150 miles away. Threw those same shapes in the water, played the sound of the cube, and gave what's called a command to the dolphin to recall, bring back the sound that he's hearing in the water. And 93% of the time, I think it was 93% of the time, the dolphin brought back the exact shape that we were playing the sound of. In other words, that dolphin was able to recognize the shape of that from just the sound. Mm -hmm. So they are sharing sound through imagery, through sound. And can you, there is a few other things in your book that I thought were really interesting um, that I, I wasn't aware of. Both the signature whistle, which is kind of their name. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I, I don't know if you've been in the water with a baby that's born. Mm -hmm. Signature whistle is pretty comes on pretty quickly over a period of time. 
and becomes the moniker, the what some would call the name of that animal. But I was listening to baby dolphins one day. I had four or five of them in the water, all under six months of age. And they all were using signature whistles continuously. And it occurred to me, why would they just, what was their information in uh, the signature whistle that was being used more than just, in other words, it's almost like the dolphin was saying, hey, I'm over here. And that's what they're doing. And the mother was able to know where over here was based upon the information in the signature whistle. And that's that's what we're convinced that the signature whistle is not just a name, but it has components inside of it that may be things like I'm over here, I'm hungry, I'm over here, I'm afraid, uh, or whatever, things like that. Huh? Uh, and uh, and dolphins do experience things like fear, and and they do experience things like I want to play, and mm-hmm. you know, where's the ball, and things. So I think that the signature whistle has a much more significant has many more characteristics than just simply a name. Mm-hmm. And do they know each other's name? Do, do they call each other's names? Oh, yes, they oh, do. Yeah. yeah, they do know each other's names. And research, we have had some dolphins mimic the name of another dolphin. Mm. Uh, we don't know if that means he's calling to that dolphin, or I'm not sure what the you know the reasons behind it. But it's, it, that does happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one, I'll tell you a really wonderful story. We, I had a dolphin named Merlin. Merlin and I. Merlin was the first Mexican in Mexico to have his own iPad before mm-hmm. iPads were even available to humans. Apple helped us out and got us an iPad because we wanted to try using an iPad underwater with uh, Merlin. But anyway, Merlin was about. So when a baby dolphin is born, for the first three or four months. The mother really doesn't sleep. She's constantly vigilant, vigilant and nursing the baby. God bless her. That's a lot of work for nine, you know, for ninety days, one hundred and twenty days. But when she needs a break from the baby, she hands it off to an auntie. An auntie is usually a female in the group who doesn't have a baby at the time. So you know, mom will hand off the baby to auntie and go swim over someplace for a couple of minutes and come back and pick up the baby and you know continue on as mama. This particular day with Merlin, uh, I was in the water, and I was there when Merlin was born. So the, the mother knew me. The female dolphin knew me. Lizzie Liz- knew me. And she needed a break. She walked. She flew over. She flew over. She swam over <laughs> with uh, Merlin in the, the, one of the positions uh, that the, the baby always takes. There's three positions the baby takes when she's swimming with her mother. And she brings uh, Merlin over to me and hands Merlin off to me and goes off swimming. So now I got this baby dolphin sitting with me, <laughs> who I'm now in charge of. So for about 20 minutes, we played. He, you know, Merlin kept doing his signature whistles around me and would look back at me and make a whistle and look back at me. Um, it was a remarkable experience that, that this, this mother, uh, Lissy, trusted me enough to give me her baby. You know, with with this that you've discovered and, and through the research, um, not just with John, John Stuart Reed, but experientially, what? how does this challenge our understanding of language and communication and even consciousness? What are the implications that you've come to kind of understand? Well, the fortunate thing about being Asperger's is I look at languages and interactions differently. First, you know, first suggestion, everybody says, well, do dolphins have language? And my answer usually is, do humans have language? 
because this world is pretty screwed up based upon our language. Uh, I, I think that over the years I've discovered, at least in terms of animals, that we have had a, our relationship to, to dolphins and, um, and other elephants and other really beautiful animals. We, we have a, an entitlement program. You know, they are ours. And, and, and how we grow up is we become stewards. And our, our research has really been towards stewardship of dolphins and trying to understand where they are at. You know, it's really not uh, Scott Taylor, who wrote um, a wonderful book, uh, said that it's not how smart dolphins are, it's how are dolphins smart. And that takes away the entitlement of, they're smart because of the earth. It's really it's building the relationship, the stewardship relationship towards these animals that has allowed us to make the breakthroughs we have. And two, um, what I, I believe play, playtime with dolphins is the entry level to communication. I, I, I work with dolphins in human care. I couldn't do the work that I do anywhere else in the facilities I'm involved with. They love their animals, and I'm very comfortable. Uh, there are a lot of people. One of the things you hear often, I don't want to get into the activist concept, but one of the things we hear all the time is dolphins in human care, dolphins in captivity. Well, there are about 4,000 dolphins around the world in human care or captivity, if that's the word you feel comfortable with. The bottom line is each year in fishing nets, 350,000 dolphins are killed every year in fishing nets. 300,000 pinnipeds, sea lions, and others are killed by nets. The animals that I've worked with, which are in human care, are so protected and so loved. They have veterinary care, and, and, and are they happy? If they weren't happy, they wouldn't spend time with me. Mm-hmm. They would just go hide in the corner and get away from this silly talking monkey. <laughs> Yeah, so I want to kind of lead into something that you you talk about in your book, and it's a bit of your mission about building this bridge between humans and dolphins. How do we go about building such a bridge? Well, the the bridge is about, you know, a a sense of mutual discovery. If, If we're trying to communicate with them, it's recognizing that some of them are trying to communicate with us. And then we have to create what's called a in linguistics is called a pigeon, something that might allow us to have some rudimentary interactions, rudimentary conversations, and then build from that. And we believe the use of what we're looking at now is being able to see what they see. We can create imagery, an imagery language, uh, so that we can play back to them what we want them to see from us. And then build a, you know, a contextual language, something that's a simplistic language. And so the bridge, first place, I'm not building the bridge. We are, we, the dolphins and me are building the bridge. And that's, that's really back to the entitlement. We as humans really think the earth is ours. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm in the middle of doing a TV show called Animal Civilizations, which we, we are alleging that there are other civilizations than humans. You know, and that when you kill a mother elephant, you wipe out a family. And what is that like? To, how does that affect that civilization? We're just a fairly arrogant species in terms of uh, who and what we are on this planet. 
And uh, I've tried to approach our research as a mutual project between the dolphins. And I think that's the reason we've been so successful. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the the understanding, uh, you know, of, of of language and and how and do the dolphins remember me every time I'm there uh, and to do the work? Yeah, they they love the work. With they want to because I base it on play. We we have fun when we're doing our our research, and the dolphins seem to like. So remember, when you're working with a child, play is. Not unstructured. Play has agreements. You, mm-hmm. This is what you're going to do. If I put the ball, you roll it back. Those are all kinds of agreements uh, just to play a game. So we began to build our language interactions based upon games. Mm-hmm. And we're now, we're ne- we've now introduced a uh, emoji. We have an emoji game that's now being trained at probably 100 dolphins are now being trained to use emojis rather than hand signals mm-hmm. so that, so that people can ask the dolphins to do things. And at the end of the interactions, the dolphins are given the opportunity to let humans ask the humans to do things. So, you know, we are looking at, uh, we're trying every novel way we can think. Uh, I think we have the emoji. If you go to castlewith.com, I think I have the emoji on uh, the emoji game, but it's pretty remarkable to, you know, for example, when you, when you interact with a dolphin and you throw, uh, a ball out there and a cube out there, and then you pick and you you want the dolphin to choose one. You show him a question mark, which means let's make choice, let's do something, and then you show him either the ball or the cube, and he gets it every time. And then you begin to build upon those simple structures. Mm. You begin looking towards syntax, and then taking syntax and making it more complex in terms of the uh, the structure and what you're looking for. I don't know if that makes sense, mm-hmm. but anyway, the emoji game is one of the one of the biggest things that we've introduced. And you know, with, with what you started with that, talking about kind of civilizations and truly experiencing the consciousness in animals, there's kind of this um, uh, maybe dimensionality that we're kind. We can be kind of blind to life that's different from us, or a bit ignorant. Yeah, you know. You know? You're making a really good point. And so let me, this is the thing that I remember I was at something called the Cetacean Summit some years ago. Mm. And I was there as a scientist, uh, not as um, most of the people there who were, were psychics and new age kind of people. Mm-hmm. I was there to talk about my, but what I noticed that, let's say there was maybe a hundred people there, maybe 25 presenters. Of the 25 presenters, 20 of them talked about having communication between dolphins and them. Some of them living in Boise, Idaho, some of them living in mm-hmm. Chicago, Illinois, when those communications took place. And I, and I said, well, that, you know, first my reaction was, yeah, right. But then I realized that the people that were at that conference, I went back and checked this out, live on direct ley lines. Hmm. They go directly through areas that have high concentrations of dolphins. So I said, how how do I know that the dolphins are not using their abilities to project information through ley lines that people are picking up? That would make sense sure. to me. Yeah. And and so so you know I went back and reported that to the group and everybody was happy because I I didn't want to say because they're not crazy. There are too many people having. Um, 
who are sitting in, I don't know, Sedona, mm-hmm. and a dolphin says something to them uh, or gives them some information, it's not, it's not necessarily crazy. There's a maybe a good science behind that, that, that some dolphin somewhere along that ley line is sending both ways, two-way, sending information back and forth to that person. So even though I'm a hard scientist by trade, I'm open to pretty much anything mm-hmm. being possible. Yeah. And, that are, and, and, and that's, you know, I'm, I've met too many credible people who've had experiences with dolphins that it would be a, I would be, a, it would be a discredit to both science and humanity to discount everything that they've said. Mm. Right. And just the bigger picture, I, there's a great part of your book where I can't really remember exactly how you said it, but if you were, if you're, somebody was to ask you, where's the dolphin, you point to the ocean, or where's this, you point to there. But if you're looking down on the earth, you point to earth. One. You know, it's that we're all one, we're all connected. And, um, and, and that's what, uh, you know, to be really honest with you, um, I go down when we're working in Mexico doing research, my time is usually about seven o'clock in the morning. And I have no, because I take 15 or 20 interns with us every time we go. We have people from all over the world who want to come and participate, and they become interns. And it's a really cool project we do three times a year where we take 15 to 20 people. But my time is in the morning. And I get down at 7 o'clock in the morning when there's no other interns around, and I'm in the water with the dolphins, and we're commiserating. Our, and I think one of the advantages uh, of, of being uh, Asperger's being Asperger's is that I can get out of the way of being a human Mm. and I can get out and I can really get into whatever that flows between two common, uh, 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 common things that the dolphin is there to play. I'm there to play. The dolphin is there to help me. I'm there to help the dolphin or assist the dolphin. Uh, And I think that that's been one of my greatest successes is that it's not crazy for me just to sit in the water and play like, a child with with these dolphins. You know, if you listen to a mother when she there's something called motherese, which is actually a linguistic term, and that's the early language that develops between a child and its mother. And it's usually you know goo goo gaga, uh, you know sounds. By the way, there are sounds that rise and fall in rhythmic patterns, much like dolphin sounds. Mm. And if you look at them acoustically, motherese does not have the rigidity uh, of, of acoustics that you find as the child gets older and older. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I get down there and I play, and uh, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, years ago, I'm, we had this dolphin. Uh, I can't remember her name right now, uh, but she said the word "me," "me," like "me." Mm-hmm. Now, she was not saying "me." She made a sound that was exactly like "me." I mean, you—if you heard it, you would go, "Oh my god!" <laughs> so I went down one morning, not knowing she did that, and. I noticed the staff was standing over, the staff at uh, Dolphin Discovery, about 10 people were watching me get in the water, and they were laughing at me, and I'm going, what is that? Anyway, so I get in the water, I take a ball out, four baby heads pop up, and I go, who wants to play ball? And one says, me. And I go, oh, my God, she is speaking to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I have, I believe, firmly in my heart, that when it happens, when there is full communication that takes between, place between full communication between us and dolphins, that I'll be there. Mm. That's just my that's that's my driving factor. That I believe that what I'm doing is destined 
to bring about. Uh, and I think the, the cymoscope stuff and the cymatic images we've moved now. For let me, one of the things you hear a lot, uh, and I, I, this is important for your audience to understand. A lot of times you hear people talk about dolphins, and that what they're doing is holographic images. That mm-hmm. that's what they're communicating mm-hmm. back and forth to each other. And I can tell you unequivocally that that's not what it is. Mm. It's it's called tomographic images, and I'll explain to you the difference. Holographic images, I can take any one piece of that holographic image, any one particle of that holographic image, and existing within that particle is the entire image. Mm-hmm. That's why it's called holographic. Tomography is a cumulative uh, amount of sound that creates the image. It's not that one part. It takes many parts. Mm. And tomography is uh, what you see when you go to the hospital and they do, uh, they scan you and you see this three-dimensional image that turns around and you can see, mm-hmm. you can walk through the body. That's tomography. And that's more likely what they're doing, not holographically. Mm-hmm. Holographic is a great new age term. And um, it's just, I can tell you from science, it's not that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean it's less. I think tomography is even more complex because mm-hmm. they'll be taking in hundreds of signals to create the image. Anyway, I'm sorry, but that's yeah. that's one of my my points that I, I hear people and I they it's just it's a very strong new age term. It's 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 certainly, in my opinion, incorrect as it relates mm. to how they do their imagery. Sure, no, I've absolutely heard people say that. Yeah, yeah. You know, you've expressed some experiences uh, about the healing uh, abilities of dolphins. Would you be willing to share anything about that sure. and what that means? So. Yeah. One of so one of my one of the nice things about Asperger's, you know, Asperger's people see miracles and okay, so it's a miracle, it's a miracle, mm. it's okay. I don't have to always explain how it happens, and why it happens, mm-hmm. uh, what's the science behind it. I mean, I two specific stories I'll tell you about. One is Manuel. Manuel, I still see Manuel three times a year, four times a year in Mexico. When I met met Manuel, he is a quadriplegic. He's what's called an intact quadriplegic. That means the nerve was not totally severed. The spinal cord was not totally severed. So he does have uh, some connectivity. It just isn't working. And when I met him seven years ago, and I, uh, by the way, your audience are welcome to contact any of these people if you think I'm full of crap. These are true stories. Mm-hmm. So Manuel's in the water, and he and I start working together. and. Two years, I had him in the water every day for two years through when I wasn't there, we had other people working with him. And two years later, you know, when I met him, he could not move anything below his neck. He couldn't use his arm. He couldn't move his arms. He was told by the doctors he would never have any movement at all. Two years later, he's being out swimming me in the water. And that was totally, totally, you know, he did other things. Some of us understand this was I don't know if you've ever been around somebody who's determined to be mm-hmm. their handicap. He was, he had, if we could bottle what Manuel had, yeah. uh, we could probably cure every quadriplegic in the world. But uh, he was determined to, and, and, and we continue. He, he, uh, he now can lift a Coca-Cola, have, he can eat lunch with me, use his hands. Not, none of that was able. Now, how did that all happen? I don't know. Mm. Why did that happen? Uh, I guess God decided it was time for Manuel to do more. Whatever. Mm-hmm. The, the, there's some of the stuff that you, when when you have multiple, I, I think I say it in the book, but 
multiple anecdotal stories as data. If you keep having the same thing happen over and over again, let's say with the same dolphin, that becomes data. Mm -hmm. Why is that happening? When So same animals that worked with Manuel, there was a lady named Patty I'm still working with in Mexico. In fact, she's in the water today in Mexico was one of our people who are trained to work with her. Mm -hmm. And when I met Patty, she uh, 17 years ago from the time that I met her, she was in a uh, with a soccer team and the bus rolled over and she became a quadriplegic in a wheelchair. Could not walk, told she'd never walk again, never, you know, that's out the door. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So I said to our, our staff, bring her down. Let's see what happens. Let's put her in the water. So the first one or two times, she 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 had a great time. Uh, she, she was being echolocated on by the dolphins a lot. She, you know, you get kind of a little buzz because you're getting endorphins released into your system. So she's feeling pretty good, but she's still quadriplegic. Mm-hmm. And and the wasn't any progress. So the third or fourth day she's in the water with me, she goes home and she her legs start twitching. Actually they were twitching a little bit in the water and when she got home they started twitching where she had to have somebody help her up out of the bed because it was like spasms. She was getting movement in her legs. Mm-hmm. So she calls her physician. And he, she says, I think the dolphins are making my legs work. <laughs> and the doctor of course says, That's bullshit. Mm-hmm. That's no, I'm sorry. That's <laughs> that's just not, I'm sorry for using that word, but that's just not true. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, that there's no way. And she says, well, I'm going tomorrow. And she says, well, I'm coming with you. I just don't believe it. Mm-hmm. So he, the next day, her doctor comes with her. We And to get Patty in the water it takes about, you know, we have lifeguards. There's about 10 people. We have therapists in the water. So there's about 10 of us in the water with Patty. And my job with Patty has been to be coached, to push her and push her and push her past her. Push her past her limitations. And the limitations are not set by Patty. The limitations are set by society. We have what a quadriplegic is supposed to do. Mm. So this time in the water, she, she says, Jack, let go of me. I'm holding her in the water. So we're trying to get her legs in. And she walks three steps on her own in the water. Wow. And I look around and everybody, including her doctor, they're, everybody's crying. <laughs> and we're now two years since that incident. And she's now able to take not multiple steps, but some steps on her own out of water. Wow. She can walk herself she can walk herself out of the water. Now, what happened? I have no idea. Mm. It does it really matter at the end of the day the fact that Patty can now walk some. Mm-hmm. Does it matter? Right. And Patty's now working with other quadriplegics at our facility down there to help them to learn to do the same thing. Wow. So, you know, everybody says, Wow, you know, the person you know, they, they they did they were deaf before they went in the water, and now they can listen. If that's true, who cares why and how? Right. It right. just it happened. Yeah, we we spend we spend all this time trying to you know recognize well it's spontaneous, and she really wasn't that. Who cares? She's feeling better, and she exactly. got a war with dolphins, and it happened. Who cares? Right. Yeah, we're always trying to prove and need the data, but did it work? Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and that and that's all that's, you know, yeah. to me that's all that's important. And we I have story we have story. I'll tell you one you wanna hear one more? We always yeah. over No, go here. for it, yeah. So again, remember I told you before every morning I go down at seven o'clock in the morning, I'm by myself in the water because that's for about an hour, hour and a half, that's my time to play with dolphins. And one of my interns comes down and she had had a bad night. She had a heart problem and she was having heart palpitations and uh, she was just very uneasy, and she says, "Do you mind if I get in the water?" And uh, you know, I hesitated because this is my time, but 
I'm not going to say no. So she gets in the water with me, and she stands. she's standing next to me. And one of my baby dolphins swims up to her and grabs her a rash guard. You know, the rash guard is a shirt you wear, so you don't, I don't know, it just it helps with sun and stuff like that. And it's a kind of a, a, a diving thing. So he's pulling on her rash guard. And uh, I said, well, you have a bathing suit on? She says, yeah. I said, well, take the, it looks to me that the dolphin wants you to take off the rash guard. So she takes the rash guard off. And the dolphin now swims up and gently holds onto the skin above her heart and begins to echolocate. And echolocates for about 20 minutes. Swims away. She looks at me and gets out of the water. And she's been, she was pain-free pain for at least a year and a year and a half after that. Never, and she was, she was taking Dilaudid. She was taking major pain stuff every day. So what happened? I don't know. But, I, you know, who hmm. cares? Yeah. She was pain-free. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing when we put, we put AIDS victims in the water. Unfortunately, we, I, I, I don't expect them to be healed, but they feel better. Yeah. So why? That's okay. It doesn't matter. That's great. They take mm-hmm. less. Yeah, so anyway, I, I, I'm not so hard-nosed in terms of we've just started something recently in the Keys called Brain Camp where we're taking normal people and putting them in the water. We have a functional urologist who's doing brain testing before they're in the water and then after they're in the water. And we're seeing major changes in uh, people's uh, brain uh, function. That's amazing. Yeah. You've mentioned several things that you're, you're working on now. And I think what's so thrilling about it is what we do know and what we don't know about dolphins. There's so much we do and And, way more that we don't know still. And, and, and when you have a success, believe me, you've had many failures to get to that success. Mm -hmm. You just don't walk in. It works the first time I've learned that the hard way. It's It's just not that way. Yeah. Well, my last question is, you know, what are you excited about right now? What information or research is is coming forth right now? Uh, So we are months away, not years away. We are months away from being able to, we're building a program that will plug into an iPad, they'll run on an iPad or or a MacBook or Mm -hmm. a PC where you'll be able to plug a hydrophone into the side of it and you'll be able to see whatever the dolphin's seeing. Wow. I mean that's where we're at. That's mm-hmm. that's the pro- that's the project we've been on since the first discovery of seeing man in the water. That that's where we're going with this, uh, and what it will allow us to do is for dolphins, for example, if there's a search and rescue mission, let's say a submarine is down someplace, we'll be able to put one of, put this device on with uh, what we have, and that dolphin can go out and search and rescue, pop up in the water and. Pop, send the information up to a satellite oh, and the wow. search and rescue team will be able to see what the dolphin's been seeing. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Uh, and, yeah. and so that's, you know, that, that, that's one of the, so that's where we're at. We, we're hoping. And once that, once we've gotten to the point where we have a real time interactive uh, piece of equipment where you're able to see what they're seeing, some, a lot, well, a lot smarter linguists will get involved and they'll start figuring out the language uh, sharing between us. So alone from looking online, swim with dolphins, you know, there's so many places you can do that. If you wanted to have an experience with a dolphin, what, what, would, what should I be looking for? What should people be looking well, for to have that experience? So a lot of people don't want to swim with dolphins in human care because they think that that's not the place. 
that's not that's just not my experience because um, I have three places in Florida. We have a place in the Keys now, Marineland, which was the first place, and now a place up in the Panhandle. Um, I would say contact me directly, and we'll talk about what you need. I, you know, are you going to have a great time swimming with them in the wild? Yes, right. You're going to have a remarkable time. But you can also have a remarkable time working with what we call the dolphin ambassadors who who are in human care mm-hmm. and have their own their own set and their own uh, teaching. Um, you know, dolphin societies are that's important, but dolphin societies are no different than ours. They have healers, they have sentinels, they have mothers. They have dolphins have different animals who have different roles. Yeah. And uh, the the ones in human care that I've experienced are are one both loved and love humans. And I would look, you know, there are facilities who do in fact uh, want you to experience it in in those terms. Uh, so uh, what I would suggest, you know, to contact me and we'll hook you up with one of the places that I work with mm-hmm. and make sure you have an, if, if that's your, wild, listen, going out in the wild is a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. I will tell you, however, you, you will not have the personal relationship yeah. that, that I seek. And that's the only, that I've only experienced. I've swum with wild dolphins pretty much, you know, all through the Caribbean. Well, my, um, my experience is the personal touch, the personal interactions, uh, that, that I've had, like like Mama handing the baby off to me, yeah. have always taken place place in human care. Yeah, uh, and uh, you know, and, and I and I stress to your audience, it's really easy to talk about captivity. But let me give you a, 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 a real quick story. Imagine that you you live in a building, and every day, a metal vehicle comes to that building and picks you up. And takes you to another building. And during the day that you, you you go to this building's rooms and you go in one room and then a bell rings and then you go to the next room and the bell rings and you go to the next room and then another bell rings and you get fed. And then another bell rings and you go to the next room. And then the last bell rings and that metal uh, truck picks you up and takes you back to your home. That to me is an example of captivity. But mm-hmm. that's also school system. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's really what you do with the human, with the dolphins when you're trying to work with them and, and, and having them in human care. It makes it different than, let's say, schools being in captivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you're, you're a good school. You're not in captivity. You're being encouraged. to, And so that that's what the good facilities try to do. Sure, sure. To, and, and listen, it's an easy argument until you find out that 350000 a year, and this is a real number, are killed and gill nuts so people can eat tuna. So it seems to me that the activists would do better to fight those 350,000 deaths. Right. Also, that's just my my personal opinion. Sure. Yeah. So the, the thing that your audience can remember most that maybe the greatest hope that we have on this planet right now is the ability to communicate with these animals who can tell us a little bit about the history of this planet and mm-hmm. give us hope how to save it. Right. The the dolphins developed their brain capacity, what, five to 10 million years ago. You know, what have they been That's doing? That. What have they been doing all this time? <laughs> <laughs> 
And I don't work just with dolphins. You know, I work with orang- great apes, uh, elephants. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to understand. I'm really trying to understand the concept of stewardship as a species, yeah. as, as from the human species, and it's it is very complex. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for all that you do, just bringing respect to to all species. You know, and uh, I really appreciate you and, and your time and and uh, keep doing what you're doing. It's very exciting. It makes me really. Uh, excited and uh and happy all all the work that you're doing i was very thank you inspired to to talk to you today yes ma'am okay all right you got it thank you very much absolutely thank you yeah bye-bye Thank you for tuning into this episode of sounds heal podcast sponsored by the ohm shop and spa and keep up to date with what's coming up next at soundshealstudio.com. Check things out on Facebook at Sounds Heal Studio. And you can listen to all previous podcasts as well as music meditations on the YouTube channel at Sounds Heal Studio. Be well and stay tuned. <laughs>